Welcome to the Holy Smokes Podcast, a show about faith, friendship, fine tobacco and drink. I'm Steve Ryder here in Southern California and with our guest today, Ralph Winter, producer of Star Trek 3, 4, 5, and 6, four X-Men movies, two Fantastic Fours, the uh, executive producer of the Planet of the Apes reboot, which was a fantastic film. Tim Burton. And also, probably one of my most recent movies that I've really fallen in love with because of my interest, I wouldn't say love of genocide, but my interest mm. in genocide, mm. The Promise, mm -hmm. with Oscar Isaac and Christian Bale, available on Amazon Prime. Ralph Winter, thanks for being on the Holy Smokes podcast. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. It's an honor. Well, first question, what are we smoking? Because you gave me the same thing. What do we got? These are Hoyo de Monterey's. It's just a, it's a Cuban cigar that I've liked for a long time. It's sort of a Robusto feel, short. I like to keep them very spongy and moist. And uh, it's a nice burn. And this will be a good 30, 45 minute cigar. And then we'll try number two. <laughs> so. Well, thank you. I'm really enjoying this one. Yeah, it's got a nice even Cuban cigars can be a little bigger than the uh, Dominicans. I don't smoke that many anymore. And so it's kind of fun to have a Cuban when I can. Yeah. So, so tell me about where'd you grow up? What was your journey? Not far from here. I grew up in Glendale. Okay. That fire's not going very well, is it? I may have to, you may have to push pause while I get that fire going. That's sad. I grew up in Glendale. Yeah. I live in Glendale now, although up in the La Crescenta area. And um, normal kind of childhood. What'd your parents do? My dad drove a truck, struggled to make ends meet, worked a couple of jobs. My mom didn't work, taking care of us, shuttling us around, two sisters. So, you know, grew up in the 60s. It was good, it was fun, active in school and sports and community things and it was good. How'd you get into, so what'd you do for college? Where'd you go off to? How'd you get into films? I went to uh, Glendo College for the first two years to play basketball, because I played basketball in high school. And then um, went off to Berkeley. In between, I spent a summer in Mississippi working with John Perkins, teaching classes, uh, helping out at his ministry in Mendenhall, Mississippi. But I wanted to play basketball at Cal. And um, I was a walk-on, didn't make it. Last one cut. Mm. Had a killer intramural team, though. We cleaned up. But <laughs> NCAA basketball is just rarefied atmosphere. And I'm 6'4", but I still was too short. Really? And I was playing a center in high school and junior college, but in NCAA ball, you're a guard. Yeah. You know, I'm staring at, I'm under the basket trying to rebound, and I'm staring at guys' hips. It was unbelievable. So I got a job out of college, got married, got a job doing training videos for a department store, and just biding my time until I was going to go back to school and a graduate degree or I thought about seminary as well. Really? Yeah. 
lots of friends that went to seminary. Yeah. And I ended up making like 40 or 50 short videos. It's fun. Learned a lot. But I was getting nowhere in the department store business. They didn't care. It's a business about buyers and about merchandise. And they weren't interested in communications or the stuff mm. I was interested in. I was trying to help them increase sales. And I made a couple of proposals that I would craft some training programs that would increase sales. And if they did, yeah. I wanted a piece of the action. And they looked at me like I had a third eye in my forehead, like I was an alien. What are you talking about? So I was anxious for more and trying to leverage all of that. It became clear after a while that I wasn't going to be there very long. And I got an opportunity to interview at Paramount Pictures because they needed somebody that knew about videotape. I'd made all my shorts on videotape. Oh. And they wanted to transfer all their three-camera film comedies to videotape. So I got hired. Trouble was, they didn't convert them as quickly as they thought. And those producers didn't want to change. So I learned film. Hmm. And um, I worked on Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, Bad News Bears, Mork and Mindy, Taxi. It was a golden years at Paramount. I was right place, right time. And I uh, met everybody and learned a lot. Who was one of your favorite people from that era? It was just a really good person that... Well, I had a mentor, Harv Bennett, who had done the <laughs> $6 million man and Mod Squad. And he took me under his wing. Hmm. And I did some pilots for him as an executive there at the studio. Gary Marshall was a good friend. He did all the Happy Days, yeah. the Vernon Shirley, Taxi, <laughs> all those shows. Yeah. Bad News Bears. A lot of good people that I'm still in touch with after a very long time ago. What kinds of jobs did you have? So I was an executive. So I was managing getting all those kinds of shows to the air. So getting, you know, Happy Days would have, I'm trying to remember now, they'd probably have a Tuesday read-through. They'd uh, blocking on Wednesday, rehearsal on Thursday, and then they'd shoot in front of a live audience on Friday. And the film would go to the lab Friday night, be developed Saturday morning. They'd have dailies come back to the studio Monday morning. And they'd cut it like a... Since Lucille Ball, they've been doing three-camera comedies on film. And so my job was, as soon as it was shot, was to help manage that process until it got delivered to the network. So I wasn't editing, although I knew how to do that because I had done it on the 50 shows that yeah. I did before. But my job is to facilitate and be sure that it got to the network on time. And we had 12 TV shows, cranking out one a week, two of us that were split up the duties. And it was, it was busy, it was hard. And since I didn't know film, I was stupid enough to go with the film to the lab and find out what they did. Why does it go to negative assembly? And what do they do there? And what are dailies on film and a one light? What does that mean? Yeah. And so all of that built great experience because I didn't know that stuff. And I thought everyone else did. But what I found out was that not a lot of people applied themselves. And so very, very quickly, I became an expert. Hmm. Very quickly, I learned about, this is in the, all in old film terms, in negative cutting and 
film opticals, etc. I became an expert, and uh, I was able to leverage that into the next job and the next job, the next job. So I left as an executive, and I went out to work as an associate producer on the Star Trek Three, and then I ended up the executive producer on Star Trek Four and kept leveraging my post-production, my visual effects experience, which came out of my computer science stuff at Berkeley. And so it was, it was, you know, I was very fortunate. I was right place, right time on a lot of key stuff. So were you born and raised in a Christian home? I was. We went to... Uh, Did you need to relight? Yeah, and we went to an African-American church downtown L.A. And um, I think eventually we ended up at a... Presbyterian church, because my parents weren't sure in an all-black church downtown L.A., some distance from Glendale, how that was going to work. But parents, strong Christians, my mom especially, and um, she was a mainstay in terms of praying for me and guiding me. Still think of her often. She died, (laughs) born on Christmas Day, died on Easter. Oh, wow. Um, and she's been gone now 30 years, but I still think of her often. She was an amazing woman and um, very generous. What did she think about your foray? In yeah, getting, she didn't getting... know. She didn't understand. She was encouraging me, really didn't understand. I'd taken the premieres, and they were just happy to be there. But it wasn't a family where we saw movies when I was growing up. Yeah. It was kind of that, Christians don't do that. Yeah. Oh. So. Both your parents the, like that? Were both your parents like that? Yeah, they weren't. They weren't encouraging me to do that. It was, you know. Was that the culture that you grew up in in the church, or was that just kind of the overall overarching Christian culture here in Southern California? It was a little of Southern California, but that was more particular the churches that I grew up in in the sort of a holy roller church downtown, and then a conservative Presbyterian church. And even for a while after I got married and I was in the church and working in the movie business, other people in the church were like, okay, you over that now? Are you okay? Mm. You're going to get a real job? Oh, my gosh. And, you know, that was difficult. There was no respect for any of that in terms of where a Christian ought to be in the culture, as well as the idea of being salt and light in all aspects of culture. When did that kind of shift? Because I remember growing up, I grew up in the 80s, in a small town in South Central Wisconsin in an Assemblies of God church. And Mm. I remember going to movies was a sin. Mm -hmm. It was kind of looked at as as a sin. I couldn't go to a junior high dance because that was a sin. Smoking a scar like we do right now was obviously... And having having a nice glass oh, of whiskey yeah. or scotch yeah. was the same. When did that start to shift? Did you notice that people in the church really started to appreciate you because and what you were doing? Because what you were doing here is affecting the rest of the country. It's shaping hearts and minds around the world as well. Well, I started to rebel. I really I didn't care mm. what the church thought. Mm. Because I was getting a level of success and recognition in the popular culture. And so 
I was trying to balance that with my faith because I wanted people to understand. So to me, I was enthusiastic to be a part of Godspell, which was a bit of rebellion. And, um, you know, we had kids and Hollywood press and we had lots of attention on what we were doing. And it was in spite of those adults. And so at some point they had to just take it because we were doing okay and we weren't living on the street and we were making our way. Yeah. But, I, you know, along the way, I mean, it's funny, there's a, a movie that comes out at Halloween that I worked on called Hocus Pocus mm-hmm. with Bette Midler and Sarah Jessica Parker. And I remember having angry Christians coming at me about how could you as a Christian work on a movie about witches and I really pushed back on all of that it was like how can you not do that how can you not be present how can you not be a part of that process because there's a trivial to me a trivial response which is you know well we ought to be putting the gospel into every product we're making Well, how about the stuff that doesn't get into the product? How about the stuff that, you know, there was a whole discussion in the development of the movie about white witches. And I was able to sort of, because of trying to keep focused on the storytelling, what's a good story? That was irrelevant. That kind of agenda stuff was irrelevant. Sometimes being a Christian in the popular culture is about the kinds of things that get squished before they see the light of day. And it isn't just about being sure that you put the words in so that people say the right words in the right order. That doesn't matter. Mm. What Mm. matters is what's the story about, what's the journey about, who are these people? And by the way, people that were criticizing me never saw the movie. Did you see the movie? The witches get their comeuppance. They're destroyed. (laughs) They don't win. That's not what wins the end of the day. It's a boy in his love for his sister that willingly gives up his life for his sister. Mm. What does that remind you of? (laughs) And so I was relentless and it happened in Southern California and it also happened, you know, in the more conservative areas of the country that are a little slower to catch on to that because they're just not exposed to as much of, of that and that's okay yeah so when did it change i think probably by the mid 90s it started to change but i tell you it's still there's still parts of the country where you gotta walk softly in terms of how you talk about it and and you got to present it in a way that is palatable to a conservative Christian audience. They don't see the value of that in movies. That's why I do that class at, at the local church, a Sunday school class. Yeah, explain that for the listeners, what it is that you do in, at your church. Well, I know in town, I do a class on Academy Award Best Picture nominees. So in the January, February period, when everything's leading to the Oscars, there's nine or 10 pictures that are nominated. Every week in my Sunday school class locally, your job is to go see one of those nominated pictures and bring your Bible and come and we're gonna talk about it on Sunday. 
and I lay out a schedule of those eight or nine or ten pictures. Yeah. And then you go see Moonlight, you go see Revenant, you go see whatever the picture is, Birdman, whatever the picture is. Yeah. And then we look at and try to, like a Bible study, try to figure out what's it about, what does it say, what does it mean, and then how does that match up with what we believe as Christians? Is it true? Is it relevant? Should we push back against it? Is there something we can learn about it that makes us stronger in our journey of faith? And um, I get a good turn on. People are engaged. And part of it is trying to help them understand how to read a movie, how to understand mm. what a picture is about and what the content is and what the takeaway is and what the director is after. Most directors are looking for redemption. Mm. They're looking for something significant. Mm -hmm. They're looking for something that is going to change their lives. Why wouldn't we, as people of faith, be interested in the very same thing? Yeah. Yeah. So, for whatever reason, I've got those glasses to put on all the time to see movies in that way. So when I see a movie like Avatar, best-selling movie of all time, there's a movie where the character Jake, who is disabled and broken at the beginning of the movie, ends up literally being born again. Yeah. He's yeah, he born dies. again. He, he becomes dies. a new creature. Yeah. Remind you of anything? Does that ring like anything that you've heard before in the faith journey? I know. Yeah. No one talks about it. No one. It's amazing to me. But when you break it down and you look at that journey and you look at the discussion and you look at what they talk about and what they fight about and the values that they're striving after. Everyone in that movie was so hung up on the new agey kind of concepts and imagery and all of that that they missed that very and, and as well as you know the people that were oh this is nothing but an environmental film mm -hmm. all those things are there's partially true that it's pocahontas on another planet that it's dances with wolves on pluto or whatever yeah. all of that's true but something caught the attention of three billion dollars yeah. that were spent on that movie. Yeah. Why? And that's what we look at. That's what we dive into and look at, you know, or a movie like Les Mis that came out in 2010 or 2012, can't remember. One of the greatest stories of redemption ever. Did the church pay attention? No, zero. Just this year, I saw a trailer for a movie called The Peanut Butter Falcon. Uh-huh. I don't know if you saw it. I haven't seen it yet. It was outstanding. And for listeners that don't know, Peanut Butter Falcon is about a Down syndrome, young Down syndrome mm -hmm. boy, man, young man, who escapes. He's part of, he's under state custody and the state is taking care of him and he escapes from this nursing home where he's with yeah. all, all these elderly people. And he goes on this Huck Finn journey with a guy that is very broken played by Shia LaBeouf and probably my favorite independent film I've ever seen there's sometimes when I'll watch a trailer 
and my spirit just jumps because I know that there is something in this that God wants to show me. Yeah. And so took the family, there was a limited release. The very first night we drove an hour and a half to downtown Denver to go watch it. Absolutely fell in love. Here's a movie about redemption, about friendship, about a Down syndrome young man and humanizing him and talking about, you know, just the slurs that he would endure from people, from the general culture. Was the theater full? No. Yeah. No. Yeah. Meanwhile, that very weekend, the latest Kendricks Brothers film came out and all the evangelical ministries were licking their boots because it was an altar call in in a theater. Fortunately, John Stone Street, president of the Colson Center, I kind of turned him on to the idea of the movie. And shortly after the major release, the the nationwide release, they they did a breakpoint commentary about it and kind of helped promote it. There was only one other ministry that I ever saw say anything was the Catholic News Network. And they were specifically talking about the, really the genocide against Down syndrome babies in the womb. Yeah. Well, look, that's part of what I think we're called to do is to bring attention to some of those things that people haven't seen and stories that do have lasting value. And, you know, with all the services we have now with streaming and everything else, some of those movies can have a life that is much longer than the theatrical run. And that's good. Yeah. But part of why I do the class is to sort of open up everyone's perspective about what is a movie, what is it about, what's valuable. So, you know, (laughs) I tortured my church to see Terrence Malick's Tree of Life. Yeah. Tree of Life, made by a faithful Catholic filmmaker that's only made five or ten movies in his entire lifetime. The Tree of Life won the highest prize in the world at the Cannes Film Festival. For people that don't know, and I'm not familiar with Tree of Life, kind of summarize the story. What is it? When did it come out? Came out in 2012. Won the highest award in the world as a filmmaker. It's the story of grief. It's Brad Pitt's in it. Sean Penn. It's more of a meditative movie. It's not cut like Transformers. Yeah. Yeah. It opens with a quote from Job. Where were you when I created the heavens and the earth? This is a movie that wins the biggest prize in the world. Yeah. And it opens with scripture and is peppered with scripture and made by a, a significant Christian filmmaker. And no one, the church ignored it. Church did not pay attention. Anyway, I made my church watch it. I gave them some preamble of what to look for. And I got 200 people to sit with me and watch it. What um, did they think? They loved it when they saw it, but you know, I had to force them. I had to get them to sit down and look at it, but they were interested enough that they got something out of it and, and I think were affected by it and have added value for them. So, look, nobody wants to be preached at in a movie, but hopefully that art form, and now sometimes the longer 10-episode TV series can do this as well. It sort of take you on a journey, take you to a place you hadn't thought about. 
and get you to reflect on questions in a different way than maybe you had ever considered before. Mm. And movies aren't about answers. It's not about <laughs> that you're going to find that secret code of how to live your life. Movies are about questions. And great movies ask great questions. So that you and I, Steve, can sit here and talk about that. That's what life's about. What's it been like for you being an evangelical Christian here in Hollywood? Because people outside of this area, and I assume probably people inside this area as well, they look at it as whether it be a quote-unquote liberal bastion or something that is almost anti-Christian and at times is very anti-Christian. Okay, what, let's what's, break what's, that down. Let's break okay. that down a couple of things. Yeah. I don't know if I want to identify as an evangelical Christian. Yes, I grew up in that and I understand what that means. Okay. But that has political overtones. Especially in the last, since 2016. Yeah, it's, it's, I don't, it's taken on a whole But even other... for 10 years or more, I don't want to take that on. Okay. So I don't know if I want to identify as an evangelical Christian. What has it been like for you as a person of faith, so, a follower of Jesus yeah. here in So people Hollywood. know who I am. You know, I can't avoid that with the internet. They know who I am when they hire me. Not everyone approaches me. Not everybody wants to hire me, and that's okay. But I don't bring a Bible to, my, to the set. Mm -hmm. I don't have scripture tattooed on my forehead. I don't want to broadcast that that's, you know, what drives me. But as people get to know me, they figure that out. Because what's important to me as a Christian, as someone who follows Christ, someone who wants to live out and struggle with what does it mean to be a follower? To me, that's about how to treat people. Mm. And so I work hard and I announce and I will broadcast about how we treat each other matters. Mm. And as a boss, as a producer, I put myself in a position where that matters and I want to be held to that standard. So how I hire people, how I fire people, mm. how I treat people day to day is important. And I want to be held to that standard because to me, that's the good news of what Jesus preached. That how are we going to set people free? How are we going to heal people? How are we going to deal with people on a daily basis? That's really what it means to live out the Christian faith. To me, again, not everybody's going to agree with this and there's going to be people that might turn this off right now. It's not about the right words in the right order. It's not about that. It's about how we treat each other. It's about how we show and love each other. If Jesus said that the, all the law and prophets hang on the two commandments, love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, that's the very foundation. It is. And I would assume here in Hollywood, where you have these massive egos, and as people climb the ranks, it just does nothing but feed those egos. I'm sure that's probably something that's an example 
Well, look, you know, other people say, well, how can you live as a Christian in that godless environment of Hollywood? And my response generally is, you mean the environment where people are more concerned about who's straight and who's gay or, oh, that's the church. Oh, sorry. You mean the place where people are more concerned about who's getting ahead or who's stepping on toes? Well, that's the education world. I mean, there's nothing in the world of Hollywood that isn't different. I think it's harder to be a Christian and be in the church. The backbiting, the comparing, the chewing each other up, it's no different in, you know, investment banking or real estate or finance or the church or education. Human beings are the same. Unfortunately, they treat each other poorly the same in all those businesses. Yeah. It's no different in the movie business. Yeah. Uh, you know, people say, well, it's hard to break in. It's so insular. Really? You tried to break into Silicon Valley? Have you tried to break into real estate? <laughs> Have you tried to break into investment banking? It's tough to break into any Come industry and, and, exactly. and, and, and work your way up through the ranks and become, you know. Come it, on. Everybody works hard. It's all insular. It's no different. It took a lot of work for me to become Dr. Dobson's chief audio engineer at Focus on the Family. Yeah. I just busted my tail. Sure. And I worked my way up through the ranks. For some reason, and it's only because people keep buying entertainment magazines, people think it's interesting who sleeps with who in the entertainment business. Really? I got a newsflash for you. Accountants sleep with each other. And you know what? No one cares. What does it matter? And it's the same in Hollywood. What does it matter? No one cares. Somehow we read about it and somehow people think it's important. It's not. What's a story that of your years of you just treating someone with respect and love and honor that really kind of stands out in how they received it and, and maybe some fruit that came out of it? Well, again, I don't wear my Christianity on my sleeve. Because as a boss, I don't want people to think that, oh, well, Ralph's a Christian, so if I go to his Bible study or go to his church, he's going to think of me differently or give me more overtime or mm. give me a raise. Or I'm not interested in that. I'm not, I don't endorse that. I don't look for that. But if people want to talk about or do something after hours, I'm all in. Mm. And I'm, I've yet to have anybody after hours when I say to them, can I pray for you? I know I can see what you're going through. And I just wanted to offer that I can pray for you or help you in some way outside. Those are where the significant things happen to me, mm. where people respond to that. I've never had anybody tell me they didn't want me to pray for them. Mm. I've never had anybody turn me down in having that kind of conversation. But to me, it happens after hours. It's outside of the workplace. It's outside of the main line of how we got connected. And those people stay connected. I've had emotional conversations with people years later because you know, in God's timing, it was the right time, right thing to say, right place. Yeah. I didn't know. I had no idea. 
it just seemed like the right thing to do. So I'm not an evangelist, but it's, again, it gets back to how we treat people and how we care for people in terms of seeing it more than just a job. It's, we all need to get, my goal in a movie or production is to be sure we all get to the finish line together and we don't kill each other along the way. Doesn't sure do any good st- to destroy people. I'm sure it can be very, very stressful with like any studio job. executives breathing all on the your time. neck. All and, the time. But at the same time, though, the way in which you approach those people that come to you after hours is something that a small business owner can do, a ministry leader can do, a pastor can do. So many of our listeners, a guy who's a foreman on a construction site can do. Look, it's all about, look, we're hired to do a job. We've got to do that job. That's important, whatever that job is. And that's what people pay us for. Yeah. And I think we should, as people of faith, be doing the best job we can. Yeah. It's about excellence. That's how people are going to know. That's how you're going to get your next job. Yeah. Is because you were so good and it went so smooth and it, the result was worthwhile I want to make my bosses lots of money. I want them to be uber successful <laughs> because then we get to play again. Yeah. It's not about me making a lot of money. Yeah. It's about, th- I want them to make money. I want them to make a killing. It's great. Cool. Then I get to get hired and get, and get to play again. It's the long term. It's a long game. Got to remember that. It's not a lottery ticket. It's a long game. When okay. I look at movies... I understand what a director does. I understand what screenwriters do. I understand what actors do. I understand what the cameraman and the cinematographer does and even the grips and the sound guys. What does a producer do? The last award at the Academy Awards is Best Picture. And the Best Picture Academy Award goes to the producer. That's the biggest award. Somebody has to be the champion. Somebody has to be the cheerleader. Somebody has to take the flag and mm-hmm. take it to the end zone and plant it in the end zone. That's what a producer is. The producer is the champion. The producer is the one who pulls it all together from the idea to hiring the director to finding the financing to working out the distribution, mm. to work out the mm. exhibition, the exploitation of the marketing. Somebody has to drive it from beginning to end. That's a producer. I could assume that it's all those responsibilities between marketing and finding the financing and hiring the director and kind of championing the team i could assume that because with especially blockbuster films there are multiple producers yep there's multiple executive producers yep that those responsibilities are are then divvied out yep but at the end of the day the oscar only goes to two or three people and today what we've negotiated i'm a member of the academy but i'm also a member of the producers guild yeah what's happened is we've worked out an arrangement where the Producers Guild arbitrates who those producers are. Mm. And so you'll see after their names on a feature film, PGA, Producers Guild, that's not 
shake it, maybe it'll open up a, yeah. The PGA gives those letters, and that designates this is the producer. These are the people who are worthy of the movie doesn't get made without them. Mm. And so there's a group in the Producers Guild that is an arbitration board that looks at those on every movie and decides. And it's a very rigorous process. So if you do a movie and you've got three or four other people, you have an opportunity to submit a statement as to why you should be a producer and get the PGA mark mm. behind your name. And then what we do in the Producers Guild is that then read those statements and then we'll go and ask confidentially to the cinematographer, the editor, the scriptwriter, studio, yeah. casting director. We'll ask all of them, who made the decisions? Who was the producer on set? Who did this? Who did that? Who? And maybe 10 or 12 people will interview on each movie yeah. and find out what they say. And then we match those up. A lot of times the producers say, yeah, I was there. I was there for all the cuts. I was in the editing room. I did this. I did that. And the Talk editor. to the editor, go, and the editor goes, who? <laughs> Never met him. Never saw him. So we then arbitrate who's telling the truth, who made the contribution, and you know, we weight that on a basis of a point basis, argue it, there's three or four of us, and it keeps shifting. There's a whole shifting team of people that do that to figure out and verify who's uh, really the producer. And if the people don't agree, they can appeal, and there's an appeal board, and they look at it again. So it's a rigorous, detailed legal process. And these are for the awards or these for... For the awards. Okay. So we assign those as the Producers Guild and the Academy honors that. Mm. So, yeah, the producer's the champion. The producer's is somebody... And, and today movies are complicated. It's more than one person. It takes a number of people to get a movie made today in the market, particularly those big blockbuster movies. Getting back to cigars, mm. which is something we haven't touched since the mm. beginning of... The interview, what kind of role have cigars played in your life, as well as what kind of role do cigars play within the Hollywood inside culture? Well, it's a cliche about the Hollywood producer with a cigar, isn't it? So I'm sensitive to that. I don't want to, I'll smoke a cigar on set, but not often, generally in a night shoot, and generally to stay awake. Normally, I like smoking a cigar to relax. Yeah. And part of that's true on a set, but I don't want to get too relaxed. And I can't drink alcohol when I'm on the set. Yeah. That would be wrong. Yeah. But, you know, outside at night on an all-nighter or the end of the week, it's kind of a nice closure and a statement. So... Is there kind of an inside club... Oh, there's people. lots of cigar smokers in Hollywood. There's lots of clubs in uh, Beverly Hills, and it's become more restrictive now, of course. I last night was at the Orange County Holy Smokes Group, and a uh, local real estate developer mm. 
He was a member of the Grand Havana oh, yeah. Club or Room. In Beverly Hills. Yeah, in yeah. Beverly I've been Hills. There. Oh, yeah, I've been there. Yeah. Yeah. He told me when I come back out in December, I said, I want to interview him. And he said, all right, let me check and see if we can go to a private room and get an interview there. And I'll take you down there and we'll hang out. And yeah, I've been a member of a number of those clubs. And that's fun. Yeah. And they all have lockers and you keep your cigars there. And it's a place we can go and socialize. And yeah, so there's, that's a thing. And there's a lot of men and women who, um, you know, frequent those clubs. What's your story? And that's getting harder and harder to find, you know. What's your story with cigars? When did you start? How'd you start? I don't know when I started. I did with a movie called Captain Ron I shot in Puerto Rico. Started getting more interested and more access to Cuban cigars, which is fun. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure who first introduced me to smoking cigars. Somewhere in the 80s. I can't remember, but it's fun. I like the taste, I like the smell, I like the camaraderie that comes around it and the fact that it's a chance to sort of slow down and uh, have a drink with it. And it's not about a competition of who can smoke the biggest cigar or the longest or how many cigars, but rather about the relaxation of it and and the fact that it generally comes with great conversation i could imagine you've had some amazing conversations yeah. on a set on an we have a shoot. group of guys that we meet every couple months and we have cigars and we meet around a fire pit one that's actually burning not like this one <laughs> which is sad yeah it's about the cigars but that's the minor part of it it's about the conversation it's about the camaraderie and companionship. What do you think about the way that entertainment is starting to be decentralized with YouTube and then obviously you have the the new studios that are coming up like Amazon and Netflix and Hulu and such. It's a golden age right now in terms of the opportunities. There's 520 scripted TV series that are shooting around the world. Wow. Entertainment is global. People are fascinated with different kinds of storytelling. The audience is fractured. Um, How so? Well, there's just so many different kinds of opportunities to tell stories, consume stories. And it's still, and the, the equipment is dirt cheap, if not free. I mean, you can make a movie for any price. I've made movies for $500,000. I made them for $200 million. You can do anything. It's still about the story. It's still about what's compelling. After Titanic or Avatar win Academy Awards, a movie like The Artist, that's a black and white silent movie, wins the Oscar. It's about the story. Yeah. It's not about the technology. It's not about the budget. It's still about the story, and that's reassuring. And, you know, there's a lot of talented storytellers out there. There's lots of ways to do it. The, the equipment is everywhere. There's nothing holding you back except the creativity mm. of how you tell a story. In that sense, I think it's very exciting. I think it's, um, 
energizing what can be done. Anybody can sort of break in and do that. I tell young filmmakers when I do teaching that, you know, there's every story has value. Every story mm. has worth. Mm. There are no bad stories. Yeah. No matter what your story is, your mom's going to love it. <laughs> She'll love it. But there are a limited amount of stories that an audience will pay for. Knowing the difference is what a producer is. Mm. So mm. you can tell any story, and you should. You want to tell a story about mental illness, or you want to tell a story about baseball, or it doesn't matter. They're all worthwhile. They're all good. But your ability to tell that story and the, the willingness of an audience to pay for that story, that's a different game. Mm. So you can tell stories on your iPhone, and you should. Go for it. Have fun. But if you think you deserve or you require $5 million to tell your story, then you got to demonstrate that mm. an audience will be willing to pay back the investors that money. How does someone demonstrate when they come pitching a story? Well, you know, part of it is you do it with short stories. You, you, can you tell the story in five minutes? Can you tell the story in 10 minutes? Something that gets my attention, something that engages me emotionally, something that makes me think. 8,000 short stories get submitted to Sundance every year. Oh, 8,000. Absolutely. Wow. With short stories and full-length feature films, I think Sundance, you can look it up, I think Sundance gets anywhere between twelve and 15,000 submissions. Out of those 15,000, they show about 150. And about 15 get purchased, and about two make money. Mm. It's competitive, man. Go to Sundance. Go watch those movies. I do. I go to Sundance every year I'm in town. I go to Sundance. Yeah. It's exciting and fun and disappointing and exhilarating of what people think they can do for all sorts of price points, generally lower price points at Sundance. Yeah. But that's how you're going to find out. You're going to find out if you can tell a story. I mean, I tell Christian kids, you think you can tell a story? Why don't you make the stewardship video? Your church needs a stewardship video. They need something that is compelling about why their church organization, people should give money to the mission and purpose of their organization. Well, why don't you help them tell that story? You think you're good? Yeah. You help them do that in a way, in a five or seven minute piece. Start early. They'll help you. They'll, nobody's going to tell you how to do it. Mm -hmm. They'll encourage you. And you're going to find out on the stewardship banquet night if you're effective. Mm. You will find out in a moment whether or not people are going to take their Visa card out and run it through the machine because they saw your movie. You'll find out right now, and you'll find out if you can tell a story. Can you help people on a very specific mission tell a story? I've done five of those when I was growing up. They're hard. Yeah. It's hard to do. But you think you have the talent to do it, then, then do that. That doesn't cost any money. 
I'm sure for a creative, it's good for them to just keep trying. Mm -hmm. Just keep honing those skills and crafting and be willing to accept feedback. That's why I made 50 of those when I was in at the department store. And most of those that I don't ever want you to see, I've destroyed. <laughs> because I know those failed. Yeah. And the ones that worked, I know those worked. And I got tangible feedback, written feedback. I know they worked. So, for instance, when I was starting out, I made a, a short production about employee benefits. Mm -hmm. Every company needs something about employee benefits. So most employee benefits videos are about big talking heads. Stale, yeah. dry. We, telling the, we telling here the at, Engulf, at Engulf and Devour, you know, we make money and you won't. And there's charts and graphs and talking heads. So I did something different. I hired a screenwriter and we wrote a story about, this is in the days when you used to go into a bank to deposit your check. Yeah. So there's people in line and there's a younger guy and an older woman in line. And as she's in line, she's got the check and the deposit slip and she's scratching her head over her shoulder. And the guy behind looks at her and is kind of looking at the check and she catches him. And he goes, I'm sorry. He said, I, I thought you worked at the Broadway department stores where I work. And she goes, no, I don't work there. And he goes, you know, where I work at the Broadway, I get a 15% discount on everything I buy as an employee discount. That's the benefit I get of working at the Broadway. She looks at him. He takes the check and the deposit slip out of her hand and he rips off 15% of it and hands it back. That's what I get. That's what it's worth. He says, well, how many holidays do you get? I, I, I don't know. He says, well, I get seven holidays and I get my birthday off. Takes the check again, rips off a little more. He goes through the line as the line moves up to the teller. And he keeps taking the check out of her hand and telling her what the benefits are of working at the Broadway. Yeah. Until finally she gets up to the teller and she's ripping up the check going, come on, I, I, I want to get a job at the Broadway. It's a goofy little show. But... I produced that so that I would go to the stores and I met with the store manager and I had a group of employees come in and I had them with a blank piece of paper write down the benefits of working at the Broadway. Yeah. Oh man, what are you talking about? What do you mean the benefits? This is boring. Why are we here? What are we doing? I go, just write down what are the benefits of working at the Broadway? And they write down something. Then I show the video then I give them another piece of paper. Now write down the benefits of work. And they, they've learned something. Get most of them. The management of the company called me in the office and said, I heard you made some employee video and spent $3,000 of our money on a video where employees are tearing up their paychecks. I go, actually, that's not the case. Here's the video. Here's the results. Here's the paperwork. Here's the store manager's. Oh, okay, well, don't do that again. <laughs> but, you know, a creative approach to try to solve a practical problem yeah. 
is the power of storytelling and what it can do. Yeah. And, you know, you learn those things by doing it again and again and again. Yeah. So you got to keep taking shots at it and see what works. Sometimes management doesn't like it. Sometimes the, the, the employees do or the audience does. You know, is the Joker movie that just came out, is that the right approach to talk about mental illness and talk about an origin story for a comic book character? I don't know. Risky. Yeah. Tricky. I don't know. Worthy of discussion. You've lived in this house in La Crescenta mm -hmm. since you said 1986. Uh-huh. You're married to the same woman. I am, 45 oh, years. For, congratulations. Thank you very much. Judy is a doll. I absolutely loved talking to her when I came in. She's in charge, baby. Don't ever <laughs> doubt it. Don't ever doubt it. From everything that we see on the outside about Hollywood, that's unique. That's different. Because the movies that you have been a part of, Kay told me, have grossed more than $4 billion. That's the studio, yeah. But yet you're living this just humble life, married to the same woman and living in the same house since 1986. It's not about that, I, you know, it's about our community, our family. It's about making sure that everybody else has enough. It's about giving yourself away. It's not about making money. That's got to be unique in this town. I don't know. I don't look to compare myself. I don't know necessarily how everyone else lives. I'm pretty conservative fiscally. So I don't see the benefit of trying to overextend myself in Beverly Hills. My family and friends are here. Why would I move away from them? Today, you can live anywhere and work in Hollywood. I prefer to live here where my family is and my friends and you relationships I've built up for 30 years. You said you got grandkids, three grandkids have, that are that great. five minutes away. They're five minutes away. They're coming over this weekend for, because the, my daughter and son-in-law are celebrating their anniversary. So they're coming to stay here and it'll be Older a three they? ring circus for a weekend. 13, 11, and seven. And they're a kick in the pants and it's exhausting, but it's fun. What do they think about grandpa? And what he does. Our teenagers, they, the 11 year old likes to travel. And so I've taken her with me. That's awesome. To get a taste of the world. So she came with me to Spain for a couple of weeks, which was fun. And next up might be Tokyo on the next project. So she's excited. Are you going to take me? I go, yep, I'm going to take you. That's awesome. I mean, how often can kids get that? That's fun. I'll make the studio pay. What do I care? <laughs> I think the studio pay. Of all the movies you've done, which ones are closest to your heart? Of all the projects, really, that you've done, not just movies, but projects. I like the second Star Trek movie, The Wrath of Khan. I think that we made that for a price. It was a, an important movie. It was about sacrifice. It was great thematic stuff. One of my um, favorite movies growing up. I loved Star Trek. And yeah. two and three we saw in the theater, even though our church felt it was a sin. My parents would sneak us to, church, to movies. Yeah. And the second one, The Wrath of Khan, was good. The fourth one with the whales was very good. Oh, I loved that one. 
And the second X-Men was good. We had, the first one was hard. The second one, I think we hit our stride. Really? One of the better movies of the X-Men series with Hugh Jackman and the cast. But like all my movies, I, I'm, I like all my children. <laughs> Ralph Winter, producer extraordinaire. Thanks for being on the Holy Smoke podcast. Let's go to rapid fire questions. Hey everyone, before we get to Ralph's rapid fire segment, I want to talk about today's sponsor, you. You can go to paypal.me slash holy smokes club and make a tax deductible donation or become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash holy smokes. You're helping us pay our bills. At Patreon, the $5 a month level, you get access to Holy Smokes episodes that are ad-free and early. And at the higher levels, you can get free swag, bonus episodes, and more. Just go to patreon.com slash holy smokes. That's patreon.com slash holy smokes. And we are a nonprofit, and your tax-deductible gifts are what's going to help us bring more people to our gatherings. Imagine the potential business connections and friendships that are sitting on the sidelines right now. Unlock them by helping us spread the word. PayPal.me slash Holy Smokes Club and Patreon.com slash Holy Smokes. Now, here's Ralph Winter's Rapid Fire segment. Rapid Fire! Fire. Here. Cigars or pipe? Cigars. What's your favorite cigar? Definitely a Cuban. Some of them are too strong. Maybe the Hoyo de Monterey is probably my favorite because it's milder. Which is the first one that we had, correct? Yes. Yeah, and now we've lit up, what are the ones that we... El Rey de Mundo is this one. It's similar. Different flavor, I think. Yeah. A little spicy or a little more spice. But some of the Cubans will turn you green. They're pretty powerful. Yeah. Favorite liquid pairing with Uh your smokes? Whiskies are good. I like, you know, the new one I like that I've run out of is there's one branded by, um, uh, called Heaven's Door. And it's, um, who's one of the greatest folk singers? Bob Dylan? Bob Dylan. Yeah. Heaven's Door. Whiskey. It's about $79 a bottle. It's hard to find. Awesome. Very drinkable. My goodness. Bob Dylan, Heaven's Door. Most memorable cigar experience? Probably with my buddies in the valley. Just the conversation. Four or five hours. Mm. A lot of cigars, a lot of personal stories. Mm. Touching, emotional. Mm. Just guys bonding. I assume I know the answer to this one. Star Wars or Star Trek? Star Trek. <laughs> What's uh-huh. Were you a Star Trek fan as a kid? I was. You know, as a kid, it's funny. We wore out the carpet sliding in on Sunday night to see, to watch as a kid. And it was always odd for me that later I'd be working with those same actors as an adult. What was that like? And pinching myself that I'm having dinner with Shatner and Nimoy. And, you know, they were terrific. They were helpful and personable and professional. But I was always pinching myself inside as a, that I was the kid <laughs> that was watching them 
on television when I was 12. Yeah. And there I am working with them when I'm 30. Funny. Nickname. Growing up, college. Burning bush. I had red hair like a carrot. (laughs) So people that know me from way back would say burning bush. What's one unusual fact that few people know about you? I like gardening. You have a beautiful backyard. We were talking but about I mean, this. I like to, but I like to do vegetables. I like to garden. I like to raise vegetables with my worm farm and compost piles. And I feel like it's kind of giving something back. It's that earthy thing. And it's a great anecdote to working with studio executives to yeah. beat the crap out of the soil and dig things and change things up. Well, we were talking during the break, and I mentioned just what a refuge this backyard really is between the two water fountains that you have here, the lush plants, and the beautiful lawn that you have. This lush grass and this is the Saint Augustine, which is very thick, and you sink into it. Yeah, and it's uh, kind of old-fashioned, and we've taken out all the rest of the lawn because of the drought. But we kept this piece because it's just kind of fun. This has got to be a place just to kind of decompress and relax and just... Yeah, absolutely. With your harried travel schedule at times. And I'm sure when you're working on a film, it's... I think about this. Yeah. Come back out here and just lay out on the lawn. It's great. Favorite type of cheese? I like Munster cheese. Munster is good. It's soft, flavorful. Pretty nice. I love cheese altogether, though. Wow. Weakness. (laughs) If you were arrested with no explanation, what would your friends and family assume you had done? Speeding. Driving too fast. All right. Last two questions. If you were to have a holy smoke with any three people throughout Uh, history... Any three? Any three. They could be living. You haven't met yet. Or long gone from antiquity who would those three people be and you can't name Jesus just because so many people would name I think, Jesus I think C.S. Lewis would be interesting and I've read some of his books I tried to develop screw tape letters I think he'd be interesting in the same way John Kennedy John F. Kennedy Ooh. would be interesting who was a cigar smoker and, and a cigar smoker C.S. Lewis was a pipe smoker he was a pipe smoker right but you know that What's that place in Oxford where Lewis, the bird's nest or the bird or the... Yeah, where the, where the Inklings met. Yeah. Can't think of the name. Yeah. But we went there, visited that, and I thought, what interesting conversations must happen over a pipe or cigar in the corner and... Especially and, uh, with him and Tolkien yeah. and all yeah. those other guys. Wow. That's two? That's two. Churchill was a cigar smoker. He'd be fun. That'd be interesting. What a mess they have in London now. But what an interesting character he was. I read a little about him. Traveled with his bathtub. You know, an aristocracy, but identified with the people. Uh, He'd be a pretty interesting cat to uh, have a cigar with. Indeed. All right, last question. If we're to meet one year from now, and I have a bottle of champagne. What are we celebrating? 
We're celebrating another year in the journey. We're laughing about what's been good, what's worked, and we're sad and crying about those we've lost. But we're, if we're here a year from now, we're enjoying another year that God's given us in the journey. Ralph Winter, thank you for being on the Holy Smokes podcast. This has been an enjoyable conversation, both while we were recording and in between and before. And so thanks for having us. Cool. Thank you. Thank you.